Season two of Have You Got Five Minutes is brought to you in partnership with Nextdoor, the neighbourhood app that's used by one in seven households in the UK. This past 18 months, we've all needed to connect a little closer with the communities around us, and Nextdoor are working to create a kinder place for people to have a neighbourhood that they can rely on. Tap into your neighbourhood at nextdoor.co.uk or download the app from your app store. I'm Rebecca Roberts. Hi, I'm Harriet Small. Welcome to Have You Got Five Minutes, the PR, comms and marketing podcast answering the things you'd normally have asked about at an event or while making a brew in the office. Hi Rebecca, how are you? I'm good Harriet, how are you? I'm good. I know we said we were gone, <laughs> but we're not really gone, are we? We've got we? a PS. <laughs> PS, we've got some best bits. So this is my best bits episode. So we're both going to do an episode each on our best bits of season two. Now, this doesn't mean that these are our favorite guests or these were our favorite episodes. Just means that these were the favorite bits from the season. And for me, these are the bits that speak to me for where I am right now in terms of my PR comms career. So this is not about these guests are our favorite. We adore all our guests and we really do appreciate all our guests are coming on although some of our guests are my friends and you know they are my faves in quote but it doesn't mean that these are our favorite guests it just means that these are our favorite bits from the season yes we're going to go in with yours first so you're going to share your favorite bits um which bit have you picked first so my first clip was from our season finale which was with sam hodges and james mcleod now this question answers the often debated over question around whether senior PR people hire based on skill in terms of PR and comms versus knowledge of the sector. So I'm talking about whether people would hire somebody based on their knowledge of fashion, beauty, television, entertainment, music, sports, whatever it is, government, politics, versus whether they would hire somebody because they're really good as a PR professional. It's a piece of feedback I've often heard in interviews where someone says, oh, we've hired somebody who had better knowledge of the sector, or we've hired somebody who understands the sector very well and has those relationships already with journalists. It was one I really wanted to delve into because it's also one that's held me back quite a lot in terms of looking for roles outside of sectors I'm familiar with. So I really liked what James said around his principles when he's hiring, which is really around news judgment, resilience, people handling, creativity and strategic thought. So it was good to see that he was looking for the skills and those characteristics in the person as opposed to somebody who was really good at television. The other thing which came out in this clip was from Sam, who was talking about how it is hard to solve the problem of somebody who is not a great communicator, so not really good at PR and comms, but is enthusiastic about the sector. So it's harder to teach somebody how to be a better comms person. And he said that's a harder problem to solve. And it was really good to to sort of hear their perspective on that. Yeah, I think also the other bit that they talked about relating that to like agencies as well it was it was more about like having the people that would work best with their team rather than like a massive agency that have done something in that space as well so I think it's like good for the individual but also like the kind of collective approaches that, that people make as well so yeah it was really good. I, I think definitely welcome people from outside the sector it's 
I think some of some of my best hires have been people that have never worked in television before. I've been maybe lucky. I've worked in television for most of my career, but we've had some really really great hires, especially in the last few years when we've when we've opened our new bases outside of London. We opened our national HQ in Leeds two years ago, and we had to recruit people who there isn't a hinterland of much television PR experience up there. And it was great because we, we got some really fresh candidates with fresh ideas coming in. So no, I mean, look, you, you're absolutely, and Sam's talked about this, you have to have some passion for the sector you're working in. You have to, if you want to work in television, you need to have, be passionate about television and you need to watch it and you need to be enthusiastic about it, but you definitely don't need to have worked there previously. There's, I think that's the important thing. And I think, you know, as much as, industry qualifications are great. I think the key principles of being a communicator are, are what, what I look for, you know, news judgment, people handling skills, strategic thought, creativity, personal resilience. They're the sort of things that I try to draw out and interview and, and look for when I'm hiring. So, yeah, but, you know, you can come from any sector and, and be great. And I think some, whether it's government, local government, different industries, for sure, we, we, we welcome anybody. We're not in a career, I think, that is traditionally qualification-led. You know, we're not accountants. We haven't had to pass certain things to prove our worth. I think, and I hope it doesn't sound pretentious, it, it, it's a soft skill being good at comms and PR. And it's something you kind of have or perhaps don't have. It suits a particular personality type. That, for me, is very, very difficult to teach someone, whereas you can always learn about an industry. So the soft skills of being a good PR are massively transferable. I would find it difficult to go into some areas that I don't have a passion for, but if you flip it around, the idea of would I bring someone into television just because they love telly but might be terrible at PR, you can't, that's a much more difficult problem to solve than someone who's a great communicator but just isn't quite up to speed with your industry yet. The other clip from this this episode that I wanted to talk about was Sam's vulnerability and honesty about moving from one sector to another. So when he moved from television, from being the head of comms at the BBC, being head of comms at Twitter, it was really good to hear it. I've known Sam for a couple of years. That vulnerability has always come through and that honesty has always come. Hearing him talking about why he'd made that decision, how he chose that company, you know, talking about things like future-proofing and wanting to learn new skills, it was just it was a really good reminder that we never stop learning and wherever we are in our career, we're always looking for that next thing. You know, when he gave the example of like the journalist not knowing who was and appreciating building up those contacts, it was something that he was able to do again. And, and I think, you know, there's often this misconception that senior PR people go from one sector to another and then they just sort of swan in and everything's great and everything's perfect. Actually, it was good to hear that maybe he did struggle a little bit and, and how he overcame that struggle. As a bit of background, the reason I chose that decision was because I'd worked in TV, been lucky enough to work in TV for all of my career. And I got to the point, so I was about 40 then, where I thought I'm going to work, hopefully, for another 20 years. And my experience within linear television probably wasn't going to see me through. So I knew I needed to learn some new skills. And having been head of comms at the BBC, I probably didn't know what the next role in television was. So it just seemed like a good moment to reflect on what do I need to learn to kind of future-proof myself a little bit? The obvious things were digital, global, perhaps a scrappier, younger company. And the one thing that I really knew I wanted was to try and work out who that company might be, but that I would be interested enough to be passionate 
and to be a good comms person for. Because I think I've said before, you can't do comms well for stuff you're not interested in. And Twitter kind of ticked that box. So I used it professionally a lot. Personally, it was something I'd used and enjoyed. So getting a job there was brilliant. And it did exactly what I wanted, which was to give me a reset. So suddenly I went into an industry where I didn't know a single person. You know, you're comforted when you move TV channels because the journalists are the same. Suddenly after 15 years, if I wanted to get in touch with a tech correspondent at the Telegraph, he had no idea who my name was. My phone would show up, my number, not my name. So it really made me value the importance of the contacts I'd made, but reignite that kind of passion to grow a little bit more. But yeah, I'm not going to a lie. It was also pretty terrifying. And the first time I went to San Francisco HQ, which is a cavernous building, it's a whopper, stood there. I had no anchor in any sense in terms of people, you know, no one to reflect with, no one to gossip with, or and, and everyone around me, I thought, would know tech unbelievably. So it did everything professionally and personally I could hope. And luckily, if you get a chance to work there, Twitter's also a fantastic culture and brilliant people. So clip that I want to share next is by Brenda J and she came on to talk to us about music PR and it was really about knowing your channels and understanding your channels you know doing that research into social media being a PR who understands the marketing side of it talks about Instagram lives and I guess we've had the most iconic one in the last weeks with Adele talking about her new album and and she gave a sample of her new song which is absolutely incredible sad girl autumn is on as it were but it was just so funny like to hear her talking about it although I am slightly over people coming on Instagram and especially Instagram lives and pretend they don't know what's going on that cuteness has gone you know we had the pandemic people were able to do that then I think I'm sort of over that bit now, but it was nice to hear the stories like when the bat attacked her in Mexico or when somebody was like, are you going to collab-, collab with Peppa Pig or asking her questions around what's her body count? You can go and Google that one for yourself. But it was just heartwarming. And then when somebody asked her what's the next album about and she was like, divorce, babe, divorce. <laughs> she was so good. But you know, I think it made me think about Brenda J because... It was all about, her point was all about like finding what suited your artist. And regardless whether she knew how to use Instagram or not, that reactive, being herself, really funny, um, not caring in terms of like just thinking of stuff and talking what she's saying, whatever she thinks, that really suits Adele. So I kind of think that that was the research you need. And the other part, which is not in this clip, but that Brenda talked about was about letting people be themselves on the channels that they're comfortable with and in the mediums that they're comfortable with. You know, we've seen examples in sports and I can think about, you know, people like Ellis Genge who have been absolutely torn to shreds because of how they've acted in media interviews because he came on with a bottle of Guinness onto a press interview. And then you think about the flip side, you think about someone like Owen Farrell and, and the backlash that he's had because he doesn't have the same sort of bubbly personality that sort of people like and then he gets sort of trolled and really dragged so people have got to be allowed to be themselves I think there has to be a give and take from the audience but I think also letting people just be themselves and shine on the channels that they shine on everything's pretty much online now so I feel like there's a lot of lines that are blurred so naturally it would be you know social media social media I don't feel like is utilized enough in a sense where you can translate press onto online platforms. So using things like Instagram Lives, that helps you connect more with your fans. And where we were literally 
in a pandemic, well, we still are in a pandemic, but where we were in lockdown and there was a lot of people doing online performances and live performances, that gave listeners and fans the chance to stay connected in a time where it was just so difficult to be able to go to live performances and be able to listen to your favourite songs in live setting. So I definitely feel like Instagram should be utilised a little bit more. I don't think people do use it enough, but there's new platforms now such as TikTok. We don't really cross over too much on the social channels, just mainly because that touches more in the marketing space. But I definitely feel like things like TikTok and Instagram. So there's a lot of like visual capsulization. The next clip, which will be unsurprising to most people, is Alex Payne. When we talked to him about the recent line, they were stuck in between a rock and a hard place. It was uncharted sort of waters for them. You know, it was very difficult. It was a hard decision to make. There were no fast rules around you can do this, you can't do this. You know, everything's up to the governing bodies. It's up to sponsors. There's so many things to consider. I get they tried to create and generate momentum in the beginning. There was some really good things around the the squad selection. There was the brilliant you know Vodafone advert with people like Murray Toje and Alan Wynne Jones breaking through like storming as they would in a charge but then it was a difficult story to tell it was very difficult you had the backdrop of Covid you had the issues with the referees and Rassias you know there was so much going on I think it was one of those things that they decided we'll do it tick it off the box it's done finished it may not enhance the brand it may damage the brand a little bit but we've done it It's, it's over with so it was good to really hear Alex's viewpoint and also just that compassion in his voice and that empathy for the comms team, which sometimes not everyone has all the time, especially when it comes to journalists and broadcasters. So it's nice to speak to somebody who really, really felt for the comms team and had that compassion. Good question. Well, I think if you look at the tour as a whole, it was a, it was a pretty tough story to tell. I think that it hasn't necessarily enhanced the Lions brand. I don't think it did a lot for rugby. Um, I was lucky enough to be back in studio with Sky sort of talking about it in a broadcasting capacity and it was pretty tough at times. We did one game actually in one of the warm-ups where we had a two-hour build-up and we came on air. And you sort of spent a couple of days getting ready for a game like that. We came on air without actually knowing if there was a game taking place in two hours' time, which makes it quite fun sort of freewheeling broadcasting. What that sort of shows you is a very difficult tour from start to finish. And I think if you're looking at the PR and the comms around it, it was it was very difficult to really generate a huge amount of momentum, a huge amount of excitement. Sport is built on supporters in stadiums. And actually the Lions, more than anything, is about the sea of red that travels to the far reaches of the Southern Hemisphere in order to be able to kind of support their team every four years. And there just wasn't any of that to tap into, to feed off, to energise. It, it removed a lot of the emotion. And so I think it became quite a dry story. It was obviously there was a very strong COVID theme throughout and that doesn't really sell in terms of sport. I mean, I, I know a lot of the, the, certainly the Lions guys in terms of that PR and comms element of it. And I, I feel desperately sorry for them because they were fighting with not one, but both their arms tied behind their back. And it was sort of about managing a pretty tough situation rather than celebrating the best of what sport is and the lion sits at the very top of that so tough gig i think it's one of those tours that won't be spoken about in the annals of time quite like um past lions tours dev mystery is the next one for me and it was all around whether big budgets equal better engagement this is a conversation that has been going on for a long time we spoke to james mcleod about it as well in that episode in the season finale where you know, he was talking to us about what they do at Channel 4 and not always having big budgets and how he uses that resource that they have 
to actually do a lot of the internal comms. So, you know, speaking to Dev, talking about where thinking outside of the box, which was really important. I really liked and I've, I found his articulation of our loss of channels as internal communicators just so invaluable. Not enough people have articulated that for me. And it's something I've been thinking about quite a fair bit. Well, you know, we've lost a lot of our channels in terms of face-to-face digital screens that normally go in the office. We've lost our events that we could do. We've lost posters that we would normally put around the office and workspaces. So, you know, we've had to adapt, but with less. And internal communicators have always worked with less. The discussion around tailoring content has been so important. And I really liked what he talked about in terms of tailoring content to your channels and what channels you're using. Yeah, and I really liked his point. I guess it's that kind of external view of like you always think a big brand's going to have a massive budget. And I think it's just reassuring to know that, yeah, clearly they do have budget to do some great stuff. Like we're not all going to get a spacesuit, let's face it. But I think some of the low budget examples are always reassuring because you're just like, yeah, you know, everyone has a scale that they've got to work to. So I think, yeah, that was really reassuring. It was really important as well to just think about the user experience. And then the two examples that he gave one on a campaign around engaging managers and then the other one on mates rates and just what they did and how they used those channels that they had effectively. And finally, just his point around purpose. You know, if you are really committed to what you're doing in terms of the purpose of what you're trying to achieve, you will make the effort. You won't put huge, long form pieces of content on a channel or on a platform or on a medium that needs something quite short, quite snappy, quite quick. And you'll take that time to be much more considered and think about your audience. So I really like that. So uh, I want to completely agree there. I think because we do some of the bigger events and we do do some of the bigger campaigns, people automatically think that we've got kind of unlimited budgets to play with. And actually, that's so not true. Usually we have the smallest and we really have to fight for it. But what that does mean is that we are very ingenious in what we do. I think the COVID pandemic has been really helpful in this way because actually we have had to think outside the box and we have had to think, what can we do to engage people? We've not got the same resource. We've not got the same tools that we usually would. How best to do it? Making the most of your channels mix is so important because actually understanding what your channels are how people use them and tailoring your content to each of those channels is really important because if you put the same message out in the same format it won't land the same way but also your audience as well so someone in the field won't necessarily have the same time to look at emails or look at a long-form piece of content or a longer video than someone who might do in an office-based setting where they might have more scheduled breaks more time in between meetings so a couple of campaigns So I ran one recently called Mates Rates, which is about our people advocacy offering. So giving discounts out to friends of people at Virgin Media and stuff like that. And we created kind of a quarterly campaign that changed each time. So the first iteration was based around friends. And we did like a little friends skit on WebEx, it's our version of Zoom. And we we were very honest about the quality of the recording. It was horrendous. I'm pretty sure like people froze about four times during this one minute call. We, we built that as part of it and we got a really good uptake as part of it. Then the next iteration, we kind of linked in with some of our gaming offers that we do and made it more about our people and set some challenges. Each time we didn't have a massive budget. All of these were pulled off with just using some of the creative resources we had internally, teams, etc. And the incentives were part of the team's budget, not internal comms. But again, we had something like a 
40% uplift in referrals just after that campaign came through. And then finally, the one we've just done has just been about summer and like seeing people and encouraging people to connect and challenging. And again, we've used the creatives to really push it, but there hasn't been a massive budget behind it. And we're still getting the results because we're talking to people in the right way. We're talking to sales managers. We're talking to our people and saying, here are the different ways you can refer. Here are some examples. This is what it means. So that's just one. And then I think another example of something that hasn't been massive budget, we did something called Mission Control Update, which was a campaign, but it was a a pack for managers, which gave them everything they needed to know about what was going on in the business for the past quarter, but what they also needed to look forward to. Again, like we managed to engage about 60% of our managers with this one pack. It was a PowerPoint deck. It was really simple. It was really easy to use. We put in like a little briefing session afterwards where they could ask questions and learn how to kind of build on it and make it their own. But that was just using our creative services team, whereby we had the in-house resource to create stuff. We made it look engaging. We found different ways. We created light versions for field sales teams and sales teams as well so they could do them in briefings but it was about giving it a clear objective as well and making sure that not only was it engaging but it actually had a purpose and that people understood what the purpose was. Charles Day was the guest that I was just so excited about in terms of leadership communication because I listened to Charles's podcast I listened to it for a couple of years I absolutely adore it and he's really made me think about leadership and creativity in a completely different way. So I was so excited for this one. And I think the first part of what I'm going to share is all around the vulnerability piece. You know, that that aspect of leaders who went through the pandemic and they said, look, I've never been here before. You've never been here before. We're going to get through this together rather than people pretending that they knew that what was going on and how they were going to get their businesses through it. The other piece was around that sort of clarity of vision and that clear definition of what we're trying to achieve. I listened to the episode that he did with Lisa Mailing and just her taking the business through that period of time in a really strategic thought out way. Yes, to most people, it may have seemed, you know, why are we doing these webinars every day? But actually, it was it really brought them together. And what does success look like for us? How do we actually do this? I think sometimes not enough businesses go back to the basics of why they're doing what they're doing and and the kind of running of the business and how that works. It reminded me of the whole um, values piece that we talk about, you know, so like people say we're human and we care and all these things. But actually, like in a crisis, what did what did she do? And I think that investment in her people and sharing and thinking about that, like how would you not be the most loyal employees and like want to support her after that? Like it's a really it was a really cool example. You know, I think maybe not surprised as much, but maybe reinforced a couple of beliefs that I had, but I didn't have a ton of evidence to support. So I think one of them is the importance of being vulnerable. It's extraordinary, I think, how often if we look back over the last 18, 20 months and see the companies that have really survived and and not just survived, but thrived. And you look at the leaders of those companies and you realize these people have really been vulnerable. I mean, they have not tried to put on airs and graces. They haven't tried to pretend that they were fine. They haven't tried to present themselves as being totally in charge. They haven't tried to present themselves as knowing all the answers. They've been really vulnerable about it. And I think that's given people permission to come and join them in the journey. I think it's given people confidence to recognize they don't have to have all the answers. They don't have to be perfect as well. And it's created an intimacy. And I think 
bigger confidence in those companies that has been, as I say, really, really obvious, I think, in the companies that have been most successful. That's really been a foundation of what I've recognized over the last 18, 20 months. I think the other part that's really been important and has been consistent is it's been really important to have a clarity of vision. I mean, everybody says that that's true anyway. It's always amazing to me how many times I walk into a company and realize they don't actually have a clear definition of what they're trying to achieve. You know, they figured out how to make money. They figured out what they're trying to sell. And so they've gotten pretty good at articulating why they, somebody should buy their product or their services. But in terms of what are we trying to build here? What's the legacy we want to leave behind? Very few leaders actually really get into that. And I think the best ones always do. And I think in a microcosm of that, the last 18, 20 months, again, the leaders who've been most successful and the companies that have been most successful have been very clear about what a success look like, right? What are we trying to create here? Even if we don't know what the long-term future looks like anymore, how do we get to the end of the quarter or the end of the year or the end of whatever the next period is? And they've been able to galvanize people around that sense of mission and purpose. There's a film production company called Chelsea pictures who just won the palm door award at the Cannes festival of creativity and i just talked to lisa mailing who's their owner and founder and the way that she and her leadership team guided that company through the pandemic starting with you know several weeks at the beginning of it when there was literally no business for them they had nothing there was no production nothing was being made they didn't know if they were going to survive or not and so she broke it down she said i know i can get us to 90 days i know i can afford to get us to 90 days what will we use those 90 days for and she decided to teach the company everything that everybody knew so she put together she and her team put together twice daily sessions zoom sessions where they basically created a masterclass in what it meant to run a production company and they would have everybody from the cfo come in and talking about you know the, this is what payables means these are payment terms this is the difference this is how it impacts us. This is how it impacts our client. She had all of the reps come in and talk about how do you present work. She had every director on the roster come in and talk about their journey and what motivates them. So, you know, I think you see people who who have created that kind of sense of purpose and mission. So she kept the company together and then work started to come back and show up in different ways. And they were really able to respond to that in a more dynamic way than they had been able to before. And so she said, you know, we learned so much about each other. We learned about the industry. We learned about ourselves. And she said, this is now the strongest team that we've ever had here. And I think no surprise that they were recognized as the best film production company in the year coming out of that. Second part of this episode that I wanted to share was around leaders and the importance of listening. You don't have to have all the answers. It was so important during 2020 for people to share their experiences of racism and discrimination. And I think we have to keep that culture of listening. I think sometimes we get into this mode of initiative and, and program and and yes, all that stuff is amazing and it's good and, it, and it's taking us in the right direction. But sometimes also we need to stop and listen to people's experiences, listen to what they're going through and how we can support them. The point around talent, the talent pipeline and supply chain was so important for me because it actually highlights something we don't talk about enough, which is that as um, media professionals, a lot of our talent pipeline comes from the journalism talent pipeline which you already know has huge problems in terms of representation. So him talking about the supply chain and the pipeline was really thought-provoking. And then the empathy piece was something that I think it's having real empathy, not just, I feel sorry for you because this is what you're experiencing in your life. And the last is just really around diversity inclusion being a change in behaviour rather than just a talking point. Are people changing their behavior or are we just talking about this over and over and over again? Yeah, I love Charles. I feel like I could have listened to him all day. I kind of forgot he was a guest and we had to ask him questions. 
Yeah, I think most leaders think that leading means talking. And I think it means having the answers. And I think I'm a white male. I'm as privileged as it gets. I have no idea, Harriet, what you've experienced in your life, for instance. I interviewed a, a guy called Ian Davis on the podcast last year because he would posted something on LinkedIn about experiences that he'd had a decade earlier working at an agency and had what he described as microaggressions. And I thought, A, this story needs to be more widely understood. And B, I need to understand it. You know, and I said to him, I know the answer to this question at a superficial level. I don't understand it in any way on a detailed level. Tell me all the ways in which your day is different than mine, right? And he said, we don't have time because I will get up and go wherever I want. And I'm not going to worry about other police looking at me. I'm not going to worry about if I go that way or that way, my, my, my life be in danger. You know, I know somebody a couple of years ago was talking to was saying, I have to leave the office by five o'clock because if I leave after it gets dark, I'm really scared about what might happen to me. They were black. And I thought that's never once occurred to me. It's never once occurred to me. So we don't know. So I think listening like we've never listened before, asking questions like we've never asked questions before, accepting the fact people are not looking at the moment for you to have all the answers. They're looking for you to understand so that you can come up with, help them come up with better answers. I think it's really important that we not try and build environments in which we've got some sort of you know, predetermined ratio, that we are actually creating environments that are truly not just accepting, but supportive of every kind of difference that we might exhibit, whatever those differences are. Having that not simply be a talking point, but having it be based on real behavior. You know, I think we have to change the supply chain, right? The supply chain, especially in the creative industries, is fundamentally designed to provide candidates who are mostly white. And it's getting a little bit better now, but still predominantly men. So I think if we don't change some of the fundamental infrastructure, we're destined to just keep repeating these same mistakes. And then I think we have to understand that there's a difference between intellectual understanding and having true empathy. And if we don't really get to the point of empathy, real empathy, then we're not going to make real changes that are really going to matter. My final clip is Naomi White. And Naomi White was probably in good company with us um, being fitness uh, fanatics, both of us. But for me, it was really the the thought process behind her setting up her coaching business. And I loved her honesty and her thought process behind it because she did a lot of research and she was honest about how sometimes PR is put on a pedestal. You know, it is, an, it is inaccessible and expensive for small businesses or independents or people who are starting out new or startups to actually have PR or hire PR and and pay for a retainer for six months or three months, but even know what to do and know how to work with a PR agency or a PR consultant. So that was really, really good. Um, I really liked that she'd done a lot of thinking around, actually, they could take this knowledge and use it for when they are working with an agency in the future. How could they use that? It gives them the knowledge and the skills to be able to teach somebody else within their teams. So I really, really liked um, Naomi's thinking around that. And just generally her thought process is just one that I really adore in terms of getting that insight. I think not enough people get the insight around how they can expand their business. And in the short term, maybe somebody could look at it as I'm losing money or giving away money. But actually, it could be a really good um, source of revenue for your agency if it's something that you're willing to try. That made PR more accessible to everybody because PR gets put on this pedestal and people are made to believe that you need an agency that costs thousands of pounds a month and you have to have a minimum of a six-month retainer. And quite honestly, for new businesses, that's not feasible. But also 
for new businesses to grow, they need PR. So it was kind of like, well, what's the option for these people? There isn't really an option apart from going online and having a Google, like how do you do your own PR, which again, gives you so much information that you become so overwhelmed. And so I spoke to a lot of wellness experts, brands, anything from service-based business all the way to products to see whether they would be interested in the coaching side of things, whether they would like to learn a bit more about the PR process, how they go about getting featured within media. And the feedback that I got from it was phenomenal. Like there were so many people who were willing to be at the very beginning, I had a few clients who were like case studies to see if it actually was viable. And they achieved such amazing results that then the PR coaching business grew into it's now a self study course, a group coaching course, and I offer one to one training as well. Sometimes the results they get, I'm like, I feel like you're a better PR than me. (laughs) It's, It's amazing to see like one of my clients, Sarah yesterday messaged me and said, she got a feature on Red online a dedicated feature about her business she is a life coach and a career coach and she was like my mum was so excited she's one of 11 kids she shared it with all of them like it's the most exciting thing that's happened to us recently and just how rewarding that is that someone else has been able to achieve that for their own business and they haven't given me all of that power for me to just achieve a few results for them as their PR and then after a few months of working with me they haven't gained any knowledge themselves whereas with coaching they have that knowledge they can go on and use it for years to come, whether they use it themselves or they teach a junior how to do it, they know what is PRable. And so, yeah, I essentially just wanted to give the power back to business owners to enable them to achieve these kind of things themselves and feel the satisfaction that I get as a PR for my clients as well. Yeah. And I think it also empowers them to know if in future they're doing something bigger, what works, what doesn't work. And then they know when to scale and when to bring in resources. So yeah, it has so many benefits for them as well. Yes. And I say this to my coaching clients all the time, even if in, I don't know, five years time, you've scaled the business so far that you're like, actually, I need a PR agency now. That's amazing because you now have the knowledge to be able to give your PR agency exactly what they're looking for, which saves so much time, energy, effort, For some clients that I work with who have no knowledge about PR, we can spend weeks going through like a PR strategy and trying to create an angle and some marketing activity that we can potentially PR. Whereas if you've got all of that start, you can give that to a PR agency and they can start straight away. So you save yourself so much time and money and you also have the confidence that you know that what you're doing is PRable rather than just giving a PR agency some random information and being like, is this what you're looking for? It's nice to have that reassurance and that confidence that you're actually providing the right information. Oh, I love these clips. Like I need to up my game for my best bits episode. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to season two of the podcast. We've loved bringing it to you. We've loved being um, with our guests every week. As we say, these are not our favorite guests or our favorite episodes. They are just thoughts that speak to me for where I am right now in terms of my career and the things I'm thinking about or the things that I really really value in terms of what our guests come and share especially when they come on and they're being vulnerable it's so important for us so thank you so much for listening to us across season two talking of which we're starting to plan for season three and if you're interested in partnering or sponsoring the podcast um, drop in our dms and we'll have a chat with you bye 
Thanks for joining us. And everything we've mentioned will be in the show notes. We're talking about the questions and issues that matter to you. So DM us on social or get in touch with Harriet at commsovercoffee.com or myself, Rebecca, at threadandfable.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review, subscribe so others can find us and have five minutes with us. Find us on Twitter at RebeccaRobert7 or at Harriet Smalzy. Season two of Have You Got Five Minutes is brought to you in partnership with Nextdoor, the neighbourhood app that's used by one in seven households in the UK. This past 18 months, we've all needed to connect a little closer with the communities around us and Nextdoor are working to create a kinder place for people to have a neighbourhood that they can rely on. Tap into your neighbourhood at nextdoor.co.uk or download the app from your app store.